I want to begin tonight by acknowledging that today is 68 years since the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And um, when I heard that today, it just struck that chord in me of remembering why we practice. Remembering that if we leave unchecked delusion, the implications are huge. When I heard about it, I was told that in Hawaii on this day, it's like there's a cellular remembrance. That that remembrance is held in the heart. When it's held in the heart, we can move forward with strength, courage, commitment. The practice that we're doing here really works with the root causes of both ignorance and what follows from ignorance, not seeing clearly. And tonight's talk is um, really following on from Annie's talk on wisdom. You know, she spoke very beautifully about wisdom. And one aspect of wisdom being the, where we begin to see into the true nature of reality. And this is what's called the three characteristics, the three marks of existence, of conditioned experience. And that is anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, the impersonal or insubstantial nature of experience. And so tonight I want to expand more on this, and actually uh, quite a bit more, because I'm going to be giving, starting a series of talks on these three characteristics. So tonight I'll be speaking about impermanence. And you know, just to say again that these, the scene of these three characteristics is really what insight, as it's spoken about. I mean, we have, as Annie mentioned, different levels of insight, but there's a particular level of insight that is deeply transformative in the scene. And you know, that this is where there is this intuitive flash or this clear scene of these characteristics. And they are actually called the gateways to liberation uh, because they are so transformative in the scene. And the scene of one really leads into the scene of the other two. You know, often impermanence is a gateway where that is um, experientially understood, you know, just not the conceptual understanding. And then out of that, we really begin to see how, you know, in conditioned experience, that, the, to, that all of these changing appearances that we have, all of these experiences, are not in themselves leading to happiness, that they're unsatisfactory in their nature. And through this, we also begin to see how impersonal that is, how insubstantial, how how it's all rising in this causal matrix. 
And ah, this is what really helps to free the mind, to free the mind from the habit of clinging, grasping. When we can see these characteristics and live in accordance with, it really can bring a lightness to our way of being. There was one yogi who once told me that they felt like they had discovered that they'd been betting on the wrong horse. And when we're betting on our experience, that's what we're doing. We're betting on the wrong horse. And so um, we find that you know, just even on the relative level, when we have some awareness of these characteristics, that it helps us to not take so personally change, or when we uh, hit levels of suffering in our lives. We find that we're not trying to do the impossible, to hang on to the way that things are. And on the ultimate level, the seeing of these three characteristics is really what helps the mind to put down this grasping. And you know, when we stop seeking happiness in the conditioned world, the unconditioned can be recognized. We find the great freedom that the Buddha promised. So tonight, beginning with impermanence. Well, the world of change, (laughs) here it is, (laughs) right here as we sit in full view. Know that we don't have to go anywhere to um, get lessons in impermanence. It's happening as we sit here in this moment. No, if we just turn our attention to the body, sensations changing rapidly at times, thoughts coming and going, mind states just sweeping through. It's all changing. So we can see this on a microscopic level where we see you know, really minuscule level of change, you know, which can be being with pain, you know, and just the pulsations of it, the changes of it, the swirl of it. Or you know, change in the bigger world, the, the level of weather, certainly changeable <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, but you know, it's just so evident. I saw once this video that was a, a sol- it was a video of a solitary landscape. And the video was taken over the course of the year, so through all of the changes of the season. And then it was speeded up to be viewed in 40 seconds. And it was so phenomenal to see, you know, just the, the rapid change that that was happening. And it really reminded me of great teachers saying that life is like a, you know, a blink of the eye, in that just watching the seasons path, pass through so quickly. 
one of the great lessons of change um, for me is uh, not just in living beings and how we live and die, but also in the world around us. So I've been at the Force Refuge since it opened, and this building, you know, in the beginning was so pristine, um, really beautiful, and it still is really beautiful. But in the meantime, we've had to replace cork floors. We see cracks in the walls. We see, I, I know when carpenters come here, they can sometimes go, whoa, you know? But it's just that, you know, nothing in the conditioned world is exempt from this aspect of change. And it really is all around us. You know, it's in our face, so to speak. And yet we, we still have habits of denying, avoiding, not seeing, uh, selectively seeing, um, which all points to the fact that we don't have ease with. And yet it really is a fact of life. And an essential fact of life. So many great teachers have hammered away on this truth of impermanence. So just to quote a few, Suzuki Roshi was once asked to put um, Buddhism in a nutshell, and he responded by saying, impermanence. Ajahn Chah was famous for his line where he would say over and over and over again, it's not permanent, it's not certain. And he said it so much that sometimes people would just leave. And he, he said that they were looking for some peace and some certainty with things. And then he'd go on to say, but don't worry, they'll be back. Uh, there was a great Tibetan teacher whose name was Patro Rinpoche. And he had a, has this wonderful book called Words of My Perfect Teacher. And in that book, he too just hammers on the importance of seeing impermanence. And he quotes from someone named Geshe Potawa, who was once asked, if a person could choose only one practice, what is the most important practice? And he responded by saying impermanence. And then said, at first meditation on impermanence makes you develop faith. In the, in the middle, it's conducive to diligence. And in your practice, in the end, it helps you to give birth to wisdom. And then the Buddha was once asked by Ananda, Venerable Sir, it would be good if the Blessed One would teach me the Dhamma in brief. That's the question I dream of asking the Buddha. (laughs) And the Buddha responded with a short discourse on impermanence. At the time of the Buddha's death, his parting words, with the light of perfect wisdom, Dispel darkness of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Awaken through heedfulness. So these teachers, all of these teachers, really bringing to light how important it is to understand impermanence, which is a fact of life, easy to see, I'd like to also share a poem from a nun in the time of the Buddha. Her name was Mitakali. And before she ordained, 
she was said to have been a very difficult and angry person. And then one day she heard the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the sutta where the Buddha gives uh, instructions for meditation, instructions for the practice that we're doing here. She heard this sutta and then decided to ordain. And then she practiced for many years. And for her, it was quite a struggle. But this is a poem that is about what was happening upon enlightenment in her mind. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then, as I sat in my cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body, rise and fall away. I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teachings has been done. It sounds so simple. (laughs) And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. When we hear that, we can look and see if our minds are completely free. (laughs) If not, it can point to the fact that we're on the right track. Because this, this expresses so much of what we see. But we have to see it deeply. We have to see it so deeply that it becomes the place out of which we live our lives. For many of us, as we explore, we start to see how we are with impermanence. Now, sometimes it's a convenient truth. Sometimes we actually are quite delighted in it. You know, if you're sitting here and the body really hurts in one moment, and then it shifts, changes, is gone, well, impermanence is a good thing. You know, we, we kind of celebrate it when it comes to unpleasant experience. But sometimes impermanence has its limits where it doesn't feel so okay. And that could be something as simple as sitting here or in our rooms, being deeply concentrated, and then maybe the neighbor next door in our room starts to make a fuss, make a lot of noise, and boom, our concentration's gone. 
truth of impermanence, not so rejoicing in. Sometimes, you know, when someone we have been deeply touched with in our lives, sharing our life with, someone who has been dear to us, when conditions change and we part ways for whatever reasons, it may be a place where we aren't at ease with impermanence. Or could be around when our body starts to break down as we age, the changes that we go through become very unsettling, destabilizing. We, we look and see that there's something that we have been looking to as a form of security that is transitory. And often in the scene of that, there can be strong sense of insecurity, vulnerability, at dis-ease, which we then, you know, it's, it's like sometimes very challenging to sit in a place where we really see things coming and going. Actually, my, the last year of my life has been an immense change on many, many levels. And, you know, sometimes one, I remember I was on retreat and just had this, this sense that I was just sitting in the rubble of change. Now that, and that, that it, it, sometimes when it becomes so evident, it really breaks down the desire for control because we just see the futility of that. And sometimes it can take the mind to, oh, it's tiring, it's tiring, you know. It's like, oh no, again, you change in a different way. And, you know, we get used to change in one way and then something else changes and something else. And, you know, it can have that sense of being destabilizing, exhausting, if we're looking for security in the conditioned experience. But when we settle back, relax, accept, it can take on this whole lightness, this whole this play of existence that is just being known. And not being identified, not being the self who has to be perfect within it, not having to have the perfect conditions in order to be happy. There's so much more freedom lightness. When we have, you know, a very limited acceptance of change, you know, sometimes when it's just minor changes, it might just be slight irritation. But sometimes, you know, it really hits a chord and we can experience rage in the face of change where it's just that unwillingness to face. It it seems unfair. It seems like it shouldn't be. Life shouldn't be this way. This is all terrain as we look to impermanence that we need to explore. We need to touch into the different ways that fear is present, the different ways that you know, we, we aren't at ease, aren't at home. And we can just look in the course of a day here to see the little places 
where change happens and the mind says, no, that's not okay. We find that if we don't face impermanence, we really lapse into the illusion of permanence, which is really a distortion of perception. And it can happen with both what we like, the blissful, peaceful, uh, joyful states, where you know, we just tend to lapse into thinking it's always going to be this way. And it can also happen with that which is unpleasant, which we don't like. And we just start to project it into the future. You know, body pain is a classic way we do this. You know, as we sit here and the knees hurt, um, we just start projecting this into how the rest of the retreat will be. It could even be the rest of our lives. You know, that this pain is here. It's always going to be here. It's going to be here. It's ruining my retreat. I can't sit cross-legged. I'm not going to be able to walk when I leave here. And, you know, we just get caught up in, in some way, believing this is permanent. A good thing to do is when you notice that the mind is overwhelmed in some way, is to look and see if there is some trace of thinking, whatever experience is happening is permanent. And whether, you know, if we try to live the rest of our lives in this moment, no matter what it is, it's going to feel like too much. And so, you know, that just spins the mind into overwhelm so quickly. To break this illusion of permanence, we really work with the continuity of mindfulness. Because this is what helps us to see, moment by moment, that things are changing. And when we really live our lives from the place of an illusion of permanence, it can bring this false sense of safety. But that gets broken when we're faced with the truth of impermanence, which is going to strike, because it is the nature of conditioned experience. And in some way, it will touch our lives. And if we don't know to where to turn the mind for refuge, we will be caught in grief and despair. Another consequence of the illusion of permanence is that it shifts us into a way of life that takes life for granted, that takes for granted the future, that there will be a future. could be, um, you know, when I was younger, I would take for granted 
having good health. That, you know, when the body is young and strong, um, energetic, we, we just imagine that it's always going to be that way. And don't often, you know, it's like a, until change really started happening and pain and uh, started setting in and, and seeing things that weren't so pretty anymore, uh, you know, there, there was this illusion that this would always be this way. Sitting here, we can, you know, take for granted that there'll be an end to our retreat, that it will end on the day that we planned it. Who knows? Who knows? Because change happens unexpectedly. No, we're not even taking for granted this day. When we get up, there's going to be a day when we get up in the morning, but it's our last day. It's going to happen. And we don't know when that day is. And we can see that there is a very qualitative difference when we are with our experience, not taking it for granted. When we are with one breath, as if there is no next breath, where the mind is so fresh and awake, it's as if seeing the breath, experiencing the breath for the first time. The difference between that and being with the breath when it feels like the 10,000th breath, you know, we've just had endless breaths in the day and here yet again is another one. You know, the mind is so deadened in that place. It's not seeing. It's not connecting. I once had a very strong lesson around taking life for granted. I had a teacher who used to say over and over to us, he said, every day I tell you to wake up, and every day you say tomorrow. (laughs) And so I'd heard this for a number of years. And then I got really sick. And when I got very sick, I thought I was going to die. And I'm sure many of us have had similar experiences. And so I was in this state really believing this could be my last day. And I had a few friends around. And you know, I remember saying to them, and I don't remember the details of it, but something about, you know, let's just go for a short walk. And it was like, oh, you know, I'm a little bit busy right now. Let's do it tomorrow. And I was laying there in the state of feeling like it could be my last walk. And, you know, I kept hearing the postponement in the way they were living. And for me, in that moment, I had no sense of future. That it, you know, it just felt like it was the end. And so that was when I really (laughs) remembered my teacher's words. And it was interesting because, you know, Obviously, I haven't died. I'm still here. Um, and the, but it had a profound impact on my life. 
And for a while, I could not make plans. People would ask me to do something in the future, and my mind would just go in the gap. How do you respond? How, I mean, how do you know? Are you going to be there? How can, we, how can we do this? And then I came to realize that, yes, it's okay to make plans. You just have to do so with non-attachment. But there's so many ways. You know, we live as if um, the future will be there. And we don't know this. We have no way to know. There was once a famous sage who was asked where all his wisdom came from, and he responded by saying, I live as a man who, when he wakes up in the morning, doesn't know if he will be alive in the evening. Can we live this way? Really valuing this moment, this life, what's here now with open arms, whatever it may be. For this is what existence has offered to us in this moment. You know, it's not always going to be that the, you know, when impermanence really strikes deeply, boom, you know, the mind is present in a way that we don't always have access to. But we really can come to question our complacency, where, where we're just putting off for tomorrow in some, could be some quite subtle and quiet way. Really saying, if we can rally the energy to be here now, as one famous person once said. <laughs> mm. In seeing impermanence, it's not something we need to overlay onto experience. Because when we look closely, it is what is seen, because it is the way things are. So it's not having an agenda that things are impermanent, but noticing how it is so. It's something that we really need to understand experientially rather than conceptually. In fact, we get stopped by thinking we understand impermanence. Oh yeah, I know that. Everything changes. No. In this moment, let it be known. Let it be seen. Let it be understood. I'd like to speak a little bit more about a few common areas where we often struggle with impermanence. The first of these areas is that around relationships. 
the, that in our lives we live in a web of interconnectedness with you know, all beings and that some of those beings are very near and dear to us. That tends to be a place where the struggle with impermanence is stronger. It tends to be that when there's abrupt changes to these relationships, that the mind can just respond with grief and despair or anger. We forget that all conditioned things are of the nature to change. And we live our relationships as if they are permanent, will always be there will always provide whatever level of support, satisfaction, nourishment that they have been. And as we all know, our needs change, conditions change. You know, for whatever reasons, these relationships will fall apart, move apart, change. It doesn't need us throw, to, to throw us into despair or a sense of futility with, well, no point in loving them. No, it, because we really want to live honoring the relative, taking care on the level of the relative, taking care in our relationships. But with the wisdom of knowing that it's not permanent, it's not forever. Practicing at the Forced Refuge is a a great place to practice with how relationships change. You know, we're here together as this community, but it isn't like another retreat where you have a beginning and ending. And what can happen, especially if we're here long periods of time or longer periods, is that some people become really familiar to us. And we might find a great sense of support and comfort in their being here with us. And then it changes. You know, the person leaves the retreat. And just seeing how that is. You know, this is really a way of practicing with change in relationship. Could even be that we're here a shorter period of time and we find, you know, someone's really steady sitting in the hall and a great anchor for our own practice. And then one day they're not there. And you know, suddenly the mind goes, oh, did I swallow too loud? Did I make too much noise? Just, we take it personally that this person has shifted their way of being. If we can practice with these changes in little ways, it really helps us when those who are really near and dear to us um, pass away, for whatever reason. I'd like to share uh, something that the Buddha said at the time of the death of Sariputta and Moggallana, who were said to be like the left and right hands of the Buddha. After they had died, the Buddha looked out at the Sangha and he said, Bhikkhus, 
this assembly appears to me to be empty now that Saraputta and Moggallana have attained final Nibbana. This assembly was not empty for me earlier. He also went on to say, It is amazing on the part of the Tathagata, that's how he referred to himself, that when such a pair of disciples has attained final Nibbana, there is no sorrow or lamentation in the Tathagata. And this was because his understanding of impermanence was where he lived his life from. He knew that this is the way of life. When my own mother died, you know, there was a feeling of great loss. Somebody whom I had loved, who was dear to me, was gone. And right very soon after I heard that she had passed away, I was with a friend, and he offered to do some chanting for her. And one of the things he chanted was a chant on impermanence. And it was amazing to me. As soon as I started hearing the chant, it was like this balm. It was like the balm of truth. It just helped the heart to relax, knowing this is the way of things. It may be that we don't have the understanding that the Buddha had. But we can still use the scene of impermanence, our reaction to it, as the place of practice. And this was expressed um, by one of the, a close disciple to the Buddha, that of Ananda, whom, you know, Ananda uh, had been the attendant to the Buddha for many years, uh, been very close to him, had been very close to Saraputta, Moggallana, and also to another na- a, a king named Pasanadi. And all of these beings died within the same year. So you can just imagine as if all of the people who were closest to you died at one time. Now what life would be like. It would be dramatically different. Know that there could be a great sense of loss, your usual form of support not being there. So this is what Ananda said. My companions have all passed away. The master too is gone. There is no friendship now that equals this. Mindfulness directed to the body. The old ones now have passed away. The new ones do not please me so much. Today I meditate alone, like a bird gone to its nest. So he really used this loss in his life to come back with practice to his life. And moments of loss, turning to the practice, coming home to our nest.
We can practice with loss in the little ways. Now, whatever it might be, loss of material possessions, loss of a mind state that we liked, loss of our favorite walking space. I mean, the mind can really react. <laughs> it can be a very small thing in life. And there's just a huge reaction. Letting this be a place of practice. Helping us to fully open to loss. Our fear of loss keeps us hanging on, needing to face that fear, needing to face whatever it is. I love this teaching from Ajahn Chah. Conditions all go their own natural way, whether we laugh or cry over them. They just go their own way, and there is no knowledge or science that can prevent the natural course of things. You can get a dentist to look at your teeth, but even if he can fix them, they still finally go their natural way. Eventually, even the dentist has the same problem. Everything falls apart in the end. I certainly know the truth about the teeth. (laughs) That leads into another aspect that we commonly suffer around, around change, and that is our bodies. You know, our bodies where we can have such a strong sense of self. You know, my body, my hair, my eyes, my stomach, my feet. Know that on a conventional level, this is okay. This is helpful. It's not that that's, there's anything wrong with using it on the conventional sense. But to be attached to this body, this body being a particular way, is problematic, does lead to suffering. I find it quite amazing in life where, you know, when I was young, I just wanted to be older. As a young teenager, craving to be old enough to do all the things that older people can do, to be big enough, or, you know, and, and then as one gets older, it's like watching this body slip away, and you know, it's sort of like, whoa, where was the point in there where it was really great? <laughs> Our culture is just not helpful around this. You know, that there is so much in the advertising world. You know, I saw an advertisement once that said, you don't have to grow old. (laughs) Well, there is one alternative. You can die, but, um, you know, if you live, then this is a natural thing that happens to us. And then, you know, again, I get a chuckle out of all the anti-aging products. You know, when you think about it, it's like against aging. And, you know, we can really start to feel like that when we start to age, we did something wrong. You know, that, that we forget that, you know, the body, the, the elements, they just have their own karma. That, you know, they can't last forever. You know, it's not, uh, everybody has a use-by date. 
and <laughs> we never know when it is, but that it just comes with this package. And oh boy, there's so much suffering around the wanting to hang on to the youthful, beautiful body. Mm. And if we pay attention to this aging process, this is right there where again the Dharma is speaking to us. It's pointing us to our home. It's pointing, you know, it's really helping us in a sense, although we often don't see it as help. And there's no question that at times when the body is failing, life is not easy. You know, it's not a picnic. But, you know, there is so many stories of great masters, great teachers in horrific physical condition who can simply laugh, who have a lightness of being, who are not in any way destroyed or broken by this failing of the body, this decomposing of the body. And I think for all of us, that's something we can aspire to. You know, that many times I've had a sense of practicing to gain the understanding that will help me to die, to help me to die not in a place of fear, not in a place of trying to deny what's going on. And this body gives us lessons over and over again. Even when we're quite young, we start to get the lessons on impermanence in the body. You know, where things just change. I remember my first age spot, you know, my first stretch mark. <laughs> you know, they were very big moments in my life at those times. <laughs> what's this, Mom? What's this? <laughs> and, listening to its lessons, not taking it personally. It's not a failing. It's just what happens. Of course, when we look into impermanence, it's inevitable that we also find ourselves looking into the truth of birth and death. And this is a very potent form of practice to reflect on one's own death. To know that this body and mind, as we know it, one day will cease to be. In looking in to the truth of this, uncovering whatever may be there, because so often in our lives we're propelled by the fear 
of death. We're running from death. Now, sometimes even you know, trying to cram everything we can into life, trying to defy death. But what if in our lives we're able to walk with a sense of ease, taking a step, not knowing this is our last step, and yet the heart is peaceful, calm, open. We see birth and death in our experience, moment to moment. We see it in the world around us. We see it even on you know, the level of the cosmos, you know, galaxies, stars, planets, being born and dying, continual flux, birth and death. And actually, this is one level of death that has been one of the hardest for me when I think of death on the level of this planet. And, and the Buddha gave teachings on this. I discovered them one day. It was right after um, 9-11, and I was in a state of shock. I did something that I often do in moments of uncertainty, you know, just open the suttas. And I opened the suttas, and I opened the suttas to a place where um, my eyes just immediately fell to this place. The Buddha was saying, one, day's, one day, O monks, this world will end. And, you know, just after what had happened from 9-11, I read that, and I slammed the book shut. I wasn't ready to hear that. So I sat there for a while. Coincidence, huh? <laughs> and, you know, it was pretty shaky. I mean, I was pretty shaken up, as most of us were on that day. And then, you know, I sat there for a while, and I opened the book, being careful to go to a different segment in the book. And I did get different teachings. So what was being said then? Um, Someone asked, (laughs) what happens when a world system ends? (laughs) I had courage at that point, so I read on. And uh, it was described as beings usually are reborn in a deva realm of streaming radiance. (laughs) I found a little bit more comfort there. But, you know, when I see this, this planet is so beautiful, and we've had this opportunity to live uh, in a world of abundance on it, and that when we every day hear stories of species dying, climate changing, um, it's heart-wrenching. But then... You know, I remembered Hogan-san. He was the Zen master who gave me my name. He is really someone who, on some level, is a compassionate activist and very beautiful, light-hearted being who, just to me, is the essence of the Buddhist teaching. You know, there's... Not much to hang on to there. He's a very um, free spirit. <laughs> and uh, I remembered one day 
when I can't remember exactly what's going on, but at one point he just looked up and he said, we live on a dying planet. And he was a man to me, you know, he loved to run on the beach, he loved to be in nature. I had, knew of his activism through things that he had done in Japan, activities that he, he had been part of, participated in, that he was really engaged on that level in the world. And when he said that we live on a dying planet, I heard him say it with complete equanimity. And I didn't see him live his life from a place of recognition, resignation. Oh, well, then it's all futile. Then why should I bother? Why should I do anything? No, he still did everything he felt he needed to do. But he wasn't attached to the result. He wasn't trying to defy the facts of life. The Dalai Lama once said, Awareness of death is the very bedrock of the path. Until you have developed this awareness, all other practices are obstructed. It's really something we need to take to heart. Otherwise, we live with this illusion of permanence. We live with a false sense of security. We live with misperception. And although the mind tends to say, ooh, impermanence, bad news, it's not the truth of it. That's just because we, we haven't maybe yet tasted the fruits of the mind of non-grasping. This again is from Ajahn Chah. When the mind starts to realize that all things without exception are by their very nature uncertain, the problem of grasping and attachment start to decrease and wither away. If we understand this, the mind starts to let go and put things down. Not grasping onto things and attachment can come to an end. When it comes to an end, one must reach the Dharma. There is nothing beyond this. So this fact of life, the world around us teaching us about it moment by moment, when we are awake, aware, alert, the scene of impermanence a gateway to liberation. I'd like to close tonight with a poem from Ryokan. The rain has stopped, the clouds have drifted away, and the weather is clearing again. If your heart is pure, then all things in your world are pure. Abandon this fleeting world, abandon yourself, then the moon and the flowers will guide you along the way. So let's just sit for a moment.
from Patro Rinpoche. Impermanence is everywhere, yet I still think things will last. I have reached the gates of old age, yet still I pretend I am young. Bless me and misguided beings like me that we may truly understand impermanence. So closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.